0: Hello, Gaggle listeners. It's host Mary Jo Pitzel. Today, we have a bonus episode for you. Phoenix City Councilman Carlos Garcia is defending his seat against challenger Keisha Hodge Washington. The editorial department of the
1: Arizona Republic hosted the District 8 candidates in a public debate.
2: Here it is in full. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'm Elvia Diaz, I'm the editorial page editor of the Arizona Republic and accentral.com, and as you can see, uh, we believe this uh, debate is extremely important, so um, debate, chat, you know, we'll we'll, we'll keep it informal as much as possible, but also we wanna be extremely fair, so uh, just a few things before we we begin. I have a few uh, Arizona Republic board members here with me who are uh, helping me. So uh, again, Elvia, I oversee the editorial uh, board. Joanna Elhans. Um, also a board member, thank you so much. Um, She's actually gonna be distributing some index cards and a pencil, if you have questions for the candidates, please write them down. She or someone else will go around picking them up and then we'll ask the question to to the candidates. Uh, Abe Kwok, editorial, uh, deputy editorial page editor and also our board member, Um, Greg Moore, Executive well, where are you? Oh there okay. Uh, uh, Greg Moore, he's going to, my co-moderator here. He's also going to be collecting some of your questions and asking uh, those as well. Uh, and uh, Greg Burton, the executive editor of the Arizona Republic, thank you for, for being here. Um, So we have exactly an hour uh, to ask uh, these questions and I have been very pleased to get a ton of them already so Greg and I uh, have a lot of questions ourselves for the candidates but again I have gotten a ton from readers so I'm going to keep it as much as possible to what they want to know and to what you want to ask uh, the candidates because that th- th- that is the most important uh, to me What um, what you want to know what's on your mind, uh, and how the council member or councilwoman would, would do. So with that, we'll begin. I'll welcome the candidates to the stage. So you can actually just take this off if you want to, or you can keep it there, however you, um, all right so we'll, we'll begin with uh with you councilman carlos garcia you are the incumbent so in about 30 seconds or so tell us why you want to keep the seat
0: well i want to keep the seat first of all thank you so much elvia for for hosting us tonight thank you all for being here um south mountain community college for having this important debate um i want to keep the seat because there's still a lot of work left to do Um, I ran to put people first. I'm really proud of the things we've done in the last three and a half years, from starting a new shelter to making sure we have more affordable housing. Um, We moved to start a lot of departments within the city, three specific ones, and I wanna make sure that all that work that we've done so far uh, continues to flourish, and I'm really excited and proud to have been through and and supported community to get through the pandemic, but I do feel um, that there's a lot more to do. So that's why I'm, I'm running for re-election.
2: Okay, thank you. And you, you, you are new to the political arena, so yes, why do you think he's not doing a good job? And tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: I'll start off on the obvious. I'm Keisha Hodge Washington, and if my campaign is doing my job, you know that I'm running for city council. I'm an attorney by trade. And why am I running? Uh, because I see a need for intentional and strategic leadership. And I don't think it's necessarily something that I myself saw. I think we saw it, the district said it, when 60% of the district voted against Mr. Garcia, they did not feel like we were getting what we deserve. So I think we need a more strategic approach when it comes to addressing our housing insecurity, our homelessness, we need a better plan for economic development, one that encourages and, and involves all aspects of our community, and we need a, a plan that truly addresses community and public safety
2: thank you and by the way if you want to know more about the canvas we have all that information at accentral.com and specifically you can go to uh, OpinionsACCentral.com. so that, that that way we can keep asking them the questions that we want to hear instead of their background uh thank you for that thank you for that uh so i'll begin with uh, with you um councilman again because you are you are the incumbent so you're going to get a lot of questions here today and i'm going to devote the first Two set of questions about police accountability because that has been a lot of what have been hearing from residents, and I think it is important just to get it out uh, out of the way. Uh, and again, a lot of these questions are from uh, from readers as well. So you had been unapologetically critical of police misconduct and have demanded increased oversight of law enforcement. Your critics say that that has been at the expense of nearly everything else. You do, you know, obviously taught some other accomplishments like you just did, uh, like directing COVID money to families and, other, um, and others as well. But you do seem to be almost entirely focused on police oversight. Will that change if you retain your seat?
0: Um, one, the issue is really important. Um, so I don't wanna not not speak to that and I'll speak to why it's still so important Um, but I think that's wrong it's simply wrong it's uh, you know probably had four or five votes in the entirety of three and a half years when it comes to uh, policing Um, do I still think we have a lot to do absolutely have we done great things so I'll I'll speak to two things that we've done one is the office of accountability and transparency Um, there's been councils from all the way back to the 90s, and Mary Rose Wilcox is here, um, who have attempted to create police accountability bodies that we weren't able to make happen. And so I'm really proud that we were finally able to create the Office of Accountability and Transparency, and that we still have to create the Civilian Review Board. The other program that we created was the community, well expanded, is the Community Assistance Program That's an alternative to police and fire. That's and so when you call 911, not only can you now access police and fire, but you'll also be able to access mental health experts, substance abuse experts, and, and you'll have uh, uh, another option, right? A lot of the incidents we saw were because um, the officers were simply not uh, trained or able to address that situation. Now, is that the only thing we've worked on? Absolutely not. Economic investment has been a priority for us. The Arizona Fresh Project to turn the El Rio landfill that's been in South Phoenix, one that should have never been in South Phoenix, but it's been empty for 40 years now into the largest food distribution in the Southwest. It's something that we've been able to accomplish. It's gonna come with a park, it's gonna come with infrastructure, and it's gonna come with the largest indoor uh, marketplace anywhere in the valley, and so, Um, you may think that way or there might be some folks of opinion but actually we've done a lot of work Um, but also uh, I'm missing to say I'm really proud of the work we've done with police accountability
2: Okay, and I do want to keep the answers fairly short obviously this one required a little bit more time so I'll give you kind of uh, two minutes or so that I I believe that's that's what it was so Keisha you 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 have been saying and you told me others as well that you are wary of over policing communities and criminalizing the homelessness Uh, and I have heard you say that many times so what's over policing to you and how do you solve that over policing to
1: me is when you use policing as a solution for every 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 instance of a in your, in your community. Overpolicing is when you are targeting certain populations based on their racial makeup, their socioeconomic status. It is based not primarily on what the incident is, but who the population is that is being police. That's what I think overpolicing is. It's also uh, what you refer to as the broken window where you monitor a, a situation and you escalate and elevate the respo- result to it because you want to suppress future conduct. I think that's over-policing, and I don't think anybody wants that. What I think we do want as a society, as a community, at least I'll speak from personal instance, is we want a responsive police force. We want to know that if we pick up the phone, we need have an instru- a situation, we call 911, we know that the police will be there in a timely manner. I think I may have shared this with you the last time we talked. I had the unfortunate incident of having to call the police when my neighbor's home was broken into, and I stood on hold for almost three hours waiting on someone to come to a me and I think that is in of itself is evidence that we do not have enough resources in our community and we need to make sure that we do have that I don't believe that I I believe I don't believe it's an either-or proposition I believe that you can have uh, adequate resources and have an accountable and transparent Police force. I also believe that we need to focus more on not just the oversight of an incident after an incident ha- has happened, but we need to invest in, in making sure we have proper de-escalation training, that they have proper mental health and behavioral health resources available to these officers. We need to start looking at what are the root causes, not the end result of the problem that we are seeing. So, and, I, and when you're talking about criminalizing homelessness, I definitely believe that we have are in a housing crisis. We need to to ensure that people are not being bullied because they cannot afford a home. The city, I think, has a responsibility to provide resources to help those individuals. And I can go on and on, and I'm sure you'll have a right. question about that, so <laughs> I will stop.
2: And yes, I do have a question about the, the homelessness here, but but, but I'm, I'm gonna do the last one on, on police, and that's on the funding the police because that has been kind of a Um, catchphrase here. Uh, So Carlos, you do support defunding the police and by by that, and that's a question, and by that specifically, you did support uh, diverting funds from the police department uh, for other other purposes. Why is that a good idea?
0: Because I think we Mm -hmm. should always, as stewards of the citizenry's funds, I think we should always be evaluating and reevaluating where our money's spent. So what was mentioned earlier, we need to have more services. We need to go after the root causes. And so if we continue to do the same thing every time and expect a different outcome, then that's the definition of insanity. And so I think it's important for us to continue to evaluate where we're spending money, what are the needs of the community. This last year we were able to approve uh, $8 million for mental health support, something that the city of Phoenix had never done, and we're making sure that all those root causes and the needs of the community are being met, um, and that we're not simply just over-policing or, or throwing enforcement at the problems, we're actually finding those solutions, um, whether it's housing or, or whatever those, those incidents might be.
2: But you specifically also were proposing to direct savings from police vacancies right, right now. Uh, so why is that a good idea?
0: The council agreed with me. And so what we did last year was actually civilianize a lot of positions. And so if we have vacancies sitting there, what we did, and the entire council voted for this, is we civilianize some of those positions. Sometimes it's not making sense what we're asking officers to do. And so you have situations For example, a car accident, do we actually need, uh, you know, after the emergency is dealt with, do we need an officer to sit there for three hours to write a report? Is there other situations where we have other civilians who are taking care of situations um, where it's not necessarily, so we have an officer in case, you know, like the incident that Keisha spoke about, that you need someone to address an emergency so officers are freed up to make sure that they do that.
2: And I did have—I uh, think I mentioned to you—I did have that experience of unfortunately having to call police to my to my home, and I had a different experience. They were there within—it felt like within seconds. So I was thankful for that. So Keisha, on the defend the the, the police. Um, you say you you do not want to do that. Instead, you propose to fill vacancies and improve community police relations. How exactly do you hold police accountable, specifically when there is an excessive force or deadly force?
1: I think there are different ways we can hold them accountable. One, of course, is ensuring that there's a system that has a procedures where we have, say, an input into it. One, I believe the civilians, uh, one of the things I would like to champion is although the state legislature has preempted civilian review boards in the way that we have consistently seen them, I think one way we can do that, if it's a certain amount of civilians on the board feel like this should be investigated further, that way, you, it, will then, it will then call for an increased appeal process. So you amplify the voice of the civilians, because I think that is the underlying goal of why we want a civilian review board. We want to make sure that the public doesn't feel like their voice is being um, silenced or, or minimized by the other voices of law enforcement that serve on the board. So that's one, I think, one way we can do that. The other way we can do that is we need to start incentivizing and making it clear that the Phoenix Police Department is not a place where, where bad actors and bad cops are able to hide and are protected by their fellow individuals. Um, We need to uh, look at things such as qualified immunity. We need to figure out whether or not we look at individuals, um, sorry, whether or not settlements need to come from the police union's pension versus from the city. There are different ways in which we can advocate for accountability and transparency that does not require us to defund the situation. And I respect Carlos's passion in in that way, but I think sometimes he's you you put the you put your ideology in front of the actual needs like you talked about uh voting for more social workers you you voted against more social workers in an instance because it did not come from the police budget that is not moving the needle forward that is focusing on on, on on things that are not that are not moving that like I said that are not moving the murder forward.
2: Let, let me ask you briefly, what do you think is his ideology is? Uh, briefly so so you so, so you can answer Carlos. I think his
1: ideology is that the police do not really serve a true function and that we as a society can monitor and police ourselves and that we have too many police officers here and that police have a history of brutality.
2: One minute Carl
0: um, so I, I don't know. I, must, I don't know what the vote is that she's talking about. I've never voted against uh, mental health support or social services. Um, and can, do you know when?
1: I can get you the date.
0: No, but well, for speak what? speak to the? What microphone the yeah. what, I said I can
1: get you the date. I don't have it in front okay, of me. But so that was, I believe, in 2019 is when you voted against. Well, essentially,
2: she said you put your ideology so before one, anything else. So do you put your ideology and, and define your ideology? I don't, and then yeah, we'll move so on.
0: I don't. I don't know what what that assumption of ideology came from, or or that definition of my ideology, don't appreciate someone else um, speaking for my ideology, it's a real issue. I've sat with families of of victims of the police. I've sat with the families of a 15-year-old that got killed um, with, you know by the police and so it's something that's important to me it's something that we've worked on um, but i think what's what's great about the work that we've done so far is now you're having even officers say hey we need to lead with services we we appreciate that things are being taken off our hands that as officers we're not expected to handle everything and that you're creating more resources for that to happen and so i don't understand what the ideology uh, uh, comes from or thought of my supposed ideology. There's, there's nothing out there and I would never support again or, or vote against social services um, or going at the root causes.
2: Okay, I do want to move on. We'll probably come back to this if you, uh, the audience here, uh, want to hear more about this. But uh, there are tons of other issues that we want to touch base. Uh, we'll go to uh, Greg Moore um, if you have any questions from the, from the audience.
3: For sure, thank you. Um, So a lot of the questions ended up being about police, but let's, since we're gonna move on from it and come back to it potentially. One question says, what is your most passionate priority? And please expound on your implementation plan or how you would improve this area should you be elected?
2: Uh, Let's begin with you, Kish. My
1: passion, my most passionate area, is they're intertwined. It's addressing our homeless situation and economic development and ensuring that we have housing security for all. Um, as many people or may or may not know, within the last year Phoenix experienced a inc- tremendous increase in our homeless and our unsheltered population, 23% over one year. Um, some of that was escalated by COVID. Some of that is a result of just the rise in increased cost of living here in Phoenix. And I think there are certain things that the city can do to address those. The city has made some strides in the voucher system. They've incentivized landlords to take those vouchers. I think that more can be done. I think we need to start uh, creating um, designated encampment areas for those individuals that are living on our streets where they can can receive services, shelter and a shower. Um, I also think that we can focus on um, converting more of our city-owned properties and incentivizing developers to create more affordable home options. We are seeing increase in, in apartments and units. We're probably units. going to move
2: up pretty quickly. Go ahead, yeah, I'm Yeah, say we
1: are seeing increases in the amount of market-rate property, but market-rate property, we realize that almost 25% of our population is unable to make that, so we are pricing those individuals out of homes, so we definitely need to work on those incentives.
2: Well, that was a long passion, right, from you? like Like, what's yes. your passionate about? So, in about a minute, and uh, moving forward, we can keep it to about 30 seconds, and I'll... Uh, I'll try to do that. So, the qu- same question to you, Carlos.
0: Same question, my passion is definitely housing. I think we've been able to do a lot in the last three and a half years. We still have a lot of, a lot of work to do. Um, and obviously, you know, some of the folks that have given a Keisha or the, the realtors and the folks that are supporting my opponent don't like the fact that we don't want to discriminate when it comes to vouchers. Um, don't like the fact that we've established more housing or that we're moving forward with uh, a second shelter. We haven't had a second shelter in the city of Phoenix since the 90s, where we were supposed to have six original shelters. We were able- Second
2: shelter, you mean a homeless shelter? Um,
0: Yes, a a second homeless shelter. Um, The 30 seconds threw me off, and I gotta be quick. Um, But we we opened another shelter in in, in District 8 that is allowing people to stay there 24 hours a day, and, and we've seen tremendous success in that and the services we provided with that shelter.
2: Well, let's keep on that and then we'll, we're going to move on to uh, another question from, from Greg. Uh, so talking about the homeless shelter, so S- District 8 has a disproportionate burden on the homelessness and the homeless shelter that, that you were talking about. So what are you going to do, and I'll begin with you, 30 seconds, what is specifically, again, you're going to do to deal with the homeless issue, which is, a, a, I have about 10 questions from readers about yeah. that and why. Why have you allowed or we allowed South Phoenix to carry the burden?
0: So this second shelter is in District 8, the first shelter or the larger shelter is currently in District 7. Um, The majority of people that we've seen be on the streets um, stay where they used to be or where they used to live or around the areas um, where they have friends, where they have family. And so the idea with the second shelter is how do we provide a shelter that actually provides the services Uh, around the clock that has the job placement that has the mental health support the drug addiction support and we've seen tremendous success since May since we opened the shelter we've had over 800 people place in permanent housing Um, and it's something that we haven't been able to either have that data or or so I'm really proud of of that shelter and it was also an empty building it was a building that the city owned that was just sitting there that had air conditioning so we could either continue to allow these buildings to sit empty or be able to make it something productive, like what we've done with the shelter.
2: Okay, Kisha. I'm sorry, I didn't. What on on the, yeah, go ahead, on the, on the I was not in <laughs> with you, I apologize. No, I agree with the district burden. 8 is
1: sharing an unfair burden, um, share of the burden when it comes to the homeless shelters. Um, we may have found them in district 8 or district 7 because CAS is in district 7 and it adjoins to mm-hmm. district 8. And people tend to go where there are services. I think that we should have a regional approach to homelessness and then to the homeless shelters. It should be born throughout the city. Um, district 2, district 1, district 3, all of them them, I'm sure have individuals that have struggled and they, they gravitate towards District 7 but and District 8. how do you 8.
2: do that? Uh, in, in both of you, in 30 seconds, how do you do that? Because I've heard that for 20 years. we Everyone needs to do it and no one does it but this district.
1: I think it comes down that is part, like that is how it's done. we've how many units are needed and we put them, we, we proportionately spread them out throughout the district. We account for the ones that district seven and district eight already has and we allow district six, uh, one through six to identify and identify their spots for this. We force them, we prove to them that it's, I mean, I think it's good old public shaming. Like why aren't your districts sharing the fair share, the fair share of this problem? And it comes with resources, there is these, the data shows that individual li- individuals tend to stay where they live, and not everybody that is homeless lived in District 7 or 8 before, okay. and they should have the same options.
2: Okay. Greg? Sure.
3: <clears throat> this is for both candidates. Please share your plan on increased mental health response resources. They say that the current response time is currently severely lacking.
2: Let's do one minute. Carlos, we'll begin
0: with you. On the current, what was the mental health?
3: Response resources. So the way I envisioned it when I read the question, there is a mental health crisis going on. Maybe the police are called. Maybe whomever shows up doesn't handle the crisis appropriately. Maybe they unintentionally escalate the crisis. How do you make sure that mental health response improves. Yeah, what's your plan for it?
0: So really proud to have championed the community assistance program that I mentioned earlier. I think that's the way we actually are going to have that for the first time. 911 operators are currently being trained to be able to triage that conversation, to be able to know when to send these experts. And then what we also did was what I mentioned earlier was the $8 million for mental health support um, to the different agencies because there hasn't been funding because it's not something that the county or the state has done we actually have to create infrastructure we have to create the organizations that are able to provide these services and what we've made sure is that these organizations are partnering with the organizations that are ready folks trust whether it's churches local nonprofits. that's who we uh, lead with and who we participate with when we have this new service now available and i think we need to communicate to folks i think the community needs to know that is now okay to call because something that's happened is if someone's having a situation what we've seen now is they may be afraid to call the police because they know they're not going to get the adequate response
2: same question to you
1: the response time is primarily delayed at this juncture because of the hundred positions that are available a third of them are filled so one we have to until we we have to one focus on filling those positions and two and until we have filled those positions we need to enter into whether or not it's inner agreements with different cities to help to help process those, or we enter into private partnerships, p- private-public partnerships with established organizations that are already doing that type of work until we can, until we get the numbers up. We simply have a, we don't have enough staff to do that at this juncture. So
2: say that again, until you have which which vacancies filled up, the police so department? Cap, no, oh, cas, CAP. cap. Okay. Right
1: now has, my last read, it had 30, only 30 of the 100 positions have been filled. Okay. So they're only a third of the, they're less than a third of the way. So that, is incre- that has accounted for our increased time, response time.
2: Okay, so, and if you just got here, uh, if you have a question for the candidates, we have index cards here uh, in pencils, so um, we can get you one, raise your hand, someone will give it to you. Uh, Oh, there's Joanna over there, she can give it to you and she'll pick it up Um, and uh, Greg will do us the honor. Uh, We're gonna change a little bit of topic and then I'm gonna go to you, uh, Greg. So Keisha, you you are touting the backing of former mayors and politicians, a lot of them, like Secretary of State Fontes, uh, and you Carlos, you have the um, uh, backing of a lot of unions uh, and you, know, you, you have been very proud about promoting all, all that uh, to voters here in South Phoenix. The question that I have for you is what does that say about you and will that have any kind of impact on the priorities as a council person? So. a lot of unions to you, a lot of politicians, including Mayor Que Gallego and all the former mayors and politicians will begin with you. About 30 seconds.
0: I grew up, I was born and grew up in a mining town. So union and for someone if you're not familiar with how unions you know, get their money, it's through dues. I mean, someone who worked every day gave money to a union and then that union decided to support me. I would always take the support of all the labor folks um, because that's the working people. That's the people, that's where I come from. That's the people that are around me where I live, right behind this college. And so I'm really proud of that support. Um, and my, you know, my values align with working class people. And so yes, absolutely proud and, and tout the support of, of the labor organizations.
2: And you don't have the unions, you have the mayor, former mayors and other politicians. What does that say about you?
1: I think it brings credibility to me as a first time candidate that these individuals who have served in public office has gotten, have sat down and gotten to know me and feel that I am able to, I have the skill sets and able to perform on behalf of the people of District 8. So to me, that is just an affirmation of my skill set and it's an affirmation of the goals that I have and my ability to work hard to do those. I also share with Carlos, I am a believer in the work in family. I do believe that the unions serve a purpose. Um, I believe that without them, some people otherwise may not have the ability Um, or the protection in the workplace. So um, the unions went with the the candidate that they were familiar with, but I too hold the same values.
2: Okay, Greg.
3: So this one uh, is for Ms. Washington, Hyde Washington. It's a pretty pointed question. With the infamous history of the Phoenix Police Department, which is under federal and DOJ investigation, how can you be so adamantly pro-police as a woman of color?
1: I knew that question was coming. Um, I am not necessarily pro-police. I believe that police serve a function in our society. I believe that you want to ensure that a system is set up that it has sufficient resources and training, and it deals with all people the same way. It is not lost on me that I am a woman of color. I have had my own interactions with the police department. I have seen the police engage with my brother, with my uh, with my cousins. I have seen them deal with them. So, but I and I and. With that experience, I know that all police officers are not necessarily biased or or racist towards individual. And I think more so, um, you mentioned the DOJ investigation. Maybe it's my legal training and my background. I, believe in the presumption of innocence and I believe that we have to let that investigation run its course I'm not saying that the police department is without flaw I believe that we have seen their flaws and we have seen that and I think you use those flaws as an opportunity to to bring um, solutions and bring change not necessarily as an opportunity to continue to you do condemn, but you don't use it as an opportunity to, to not move forward. So, so you,
2: so you call them flaws, not police brutality. You wore that T-shirt very proudly. Stop police brutality. Mm-hmm. So huge difference here, right? So you're calling it police flaws. Well, I call brutality. it flaws. And then I'll go to, I'll let continue. me let me say,
1: I call it flaws because I don't believe that every officer is engages in police brutality and I believe that there are misguided individuals in the police department that may have done that have done things I won't say may have I mean I have spoken at community <laughs> listening sessions on public safety I have spoken out and at First presented Solutions um, so I don't want to make it seem like I'm undermining the killing of anybody because any person that dies at the hand of a police officer Mr. Garcia isn't the only one that's ever had to deal with that I have counseled individuals that have also dealt with police brutality but I also know that you have to look at what, this, what part of the system has failed us not necessarily throwing out the entire system so maybe that's the key difference. 30 seconds
0: or one minute. You spoke to qualified immunity, and there is one union and one labor association that has not supported me, and that's the police union, and they've supported my opponent. And similar to how the mayor and other folks who haven't shown up for our community are, they, they might have got to know you in the last year, But they definitely know what I stand for and I think they're not wanting to see the change and the things that we fought for for the people of District 8 Um, and that's why those folks are supporting my opponent Um, and 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 those police unions or those those associations have allowed us to get to the point where we're at now with essential immunity for officers and and then being able to do whatever um, they, they do and, and not feel like there's any consequences and so I think it's important for us to know the role that they've played um, and, and how we keep giving to them, give, keep giving them space to create um, a culture that's allowed them to do the things that they've done that unfortunately now is going to cost the City of Phoenix taxpayers a whole lot of money when the DOJ is done with this investigation. Greg? Sure and this would be specifically to Mr. Garcia Could you tell us
3: your position on police defunding? I
2: I believe you already answered the question, but if you you wanna give it another try for uh, 15 seconds or so. Sure, yeah. So why do you wanna defund the police? I think
0: continuing to look at the reallocation of funds and where the most important uh, expenditures have to be in our city is our role. The fact that we continue to have the same budget and not change it and continue to fund the same things, again, to me, is the definition of insanity. We have to make sure that we're taking care of of those root causes and making sure that the police is not always what we default to or what uh, is, is the only definition of public safety.
2: Uh, So I'm going to move on from police unless you have uh, other questions about that. So this is a question from one of our readers. Uh, Do you support eliminating rental taxes? We'll begin with you.
1: The rental tax, I do believe in eliminating a portion of it because it at this juncture or maybe a temporary hiatus at this juncture many people are over their expenses for rental is more than 30 or 40 percent of their income and the rental tax can be an avenue in which we can help make housing more affordable.
2: Uh, Same to you, Carlos, and then I'm I'm, going to come back to to you because we just published a a column by mayors, uh, Arizona mayors, saying that they do not want to get rid of the rental tax, which has a lot of people wanted, because especially for what you you were saying, there are too many people, uh, especially the poor, that are paying way too much. So, uh, Carlos, and then we'll, if you have anything else.
0: I hope the mayor doesn't get too upset that that's how you answer that that's one of the only that's one of our biggest revenue sources as a city and so we're talking about um, what they're trying to do at the state legislature is basically take uh, as many funds as possible from our cities um, where we already have uh, you know a lot of a lot of expenses and so I think it's for that that portion or, or those bills that are at the state legislature I joined the mayors in, in opposing all those bills.
2: Greg, on that or anything else?
3: No, the questions from the audience are all over the place and really good, and I appreciate hearing from everybody here. I'm grateful to be able to pass this along to you guys. This is for both of you. Uh, It's about pollution. They're worried that the water, air, and soil are polluted, and they're curious, what have you done and will you do to fix and improve the situation?
2: Kish.
1: Well, I mean, the air pollution is obvious. We have high asthma rates. We have landfills here in South Phoenix, as mentioned by my Councilman Garcia. I think one of the things that the city is doing well and we need to continue to do is work on the emissions um, from our public transportation, as well as the fleets that operate in our city. The other things that we can do is include in. There can be restrictions that need to be placed on those that are operating in this to continue to control our air quality our water resources we want to make sure they're not being um they're not being polluted or tainted in any manner and i think also from a a counter respect i think we need to focus on eliminating or kind of consolidating actual vehicular traffic to help increase our um sorry keep our air quality
0: lower it's it's a huge issue and it's a huge issue for us in in south phoenix south of the i-17 life expectancy is 10 to 14 years less um we've had the landfills we've had waste you know estevan park near here um, up until you know when we got into office was the green landfill for all parks at the city of Phoenix that would never happen anywhere else I'm really proud for us um, having removed that and now pushing for a community center to come to Esteban Park Um, and we started the office of of heat mitigation it's the first of its kind in the entire country Um, and so we look at corners like 19th Avenue and southern which is the hottest corner in the entire city we're able to put cool pavement and this weekend and and along with a, a lot of other folks we're putting brand new trees there. And yes, sometimes it's more expensive to plant trees or take care of, of the things in South Phoenix, but we've been able to find resources to make sure that we're, we're taking care of that.
2: And we'll hold you to that, because it is, it is a huge issue to, uh, to both of you. Let, let me read one from one of our readers, and then I'll, I'll oh, is there a follow up on that? Yeah,
3: this, will because we're sticking with the environment with this question, right? So the Colorado River is drying up. Most of our water comes from the Colorado, Colorado River and the overwhelming majority of that water, uh, the question says 86 percent, I don't know whether that's an accurate number, but the overwhelming majority of that water goes toward agriculture. What can you do as a member of the City Council to minimize water use and focus on conservation?
2: Uh, We'll begin with you, Keisha, here for about a minute and I'm going to keep track because we have about 20 minutes left, so go ahead. Uh,
1: One of the things I think we can do is incentivize a use of technology that monitors and conserve water as the HOA uh, in my HOA presidency we have we we invested in in equipment that tracks the moisture usage and all of that and we use water much more efficiently within the first two years of the project we're able to repay ourselves based on what we save by that. I also think we can use more water recycling type of projects for our agricultural use Um, and we can also incentivize um, what types of usage I'm sorry are actually grown whether or not it's water intensive types of
0: crops Carlos. It's a huge question. I'm going to try to keep it to, to uh, a minute. It's re- 30 seconds. It's really important. I think there's there's two things. It's the, the innovation piece. We have great uh, water treatment plants now, the Tres Rios water plant. We're doing a lot around our water. There is a next step. I don't think it might grow some people out, but we have to get to a point, El Paso and the city of Denver have done it, where we're going to get to put that water back to the tap that's the only one of the only ways we can conserve water here in Phoenix Um, but we also need to play a regional part Um, yes a lot of our water comes from the cap um, which also goes to California so I do think we have to have those relationships something happened in Congress uh, three months ago Uh, our senator Kelly uh, sponsored a bill that now allows us to uh, trade and work with the tribes to make sure that we're conserving water. I think as the city of Phoenix, we must take leadership in doing that. The last thing I'll say, a lot of the water that we've conserved in, in Phoenix is actually in South Phoenix, underground, underneath us. We need to make sure that we clean that water, that we take care of that water, um, and that we're actually uh, taking measures um, to conserve that water, right? Do we need these many golf courses? What is? What are the places that we need to do? And we, again, uh, can't Taking a lot of time, but we did an entire water conservation plan that I was proud to work on and vote on while I've been on council.
2: I'll move as fast as I can here because I have like 20 other questions from 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 readers. Uh, the Ninth Circuit Court decision allows cities to create uh, mobile park zoning for existing mobile home parks. The city claims a state law uh, impedes their ability uh, to do that. Will you vote? To do a mobile home zoning overlay despite developers' resistance and Mayor Kay Gallego's reluctance to tackle the displacement crisis in order to protect low income hamil- families from homelessness. So, the question again will you vote to uh, do a mobile home zoning overlay? Um, with you, we'll begin with you.
1: I don't have enough facts in order to say whether or not I'll vote against it. I mean, we have to look and see whether or not that's the best use of the density of that project, um, of that overlay as proposed. But I do believe that mobile homes do provide an avenue for home ownership for individuals and lower class um, families. So I definitely would be supportive of that, but it really just depends on what that would look like. I don't have enough facts.
0: I absolutely would. I think it's one of the only places that's left at that price point is is mobile home parts, and I think people might think of mobile home parts as not. Uh, um, you know not the best place to live they're actually amazing communities where we've had communities where residents have lived there for over 30 years created community take care of each other um, we've done it as a city for golf courses if we've done overlays for golf courses we can do overlays for people's homes and making sure we have that
2: greg do you have a question
0: no that
3: did you want to move on from home, mobile homes or did you want to stay there
2: we probably want to move on. Move on. I have works like for me. 25 other questions. <laughs>
3: <laughs> this is for both candidates. What do you think District 8 can do about the drugs in the area, uh, specifically fentanyl? Uh, citywide, all districts, how can District 8 within itself address the problem and then work with the city as a whole to address the problem of drugs?
2: We'll begin with you, Carlos. Okay.
0: Um, it's a huge problem I think a lot of us have had friends relationships people in our family that unfortunately have gone through this, through this epidemic um, we've learned from experiences in the past. We've learned from the crack epidemic. We've learned from other times that we've seen this. And I think we need to take the lessons learned from that. And, and I mean the good lessons, right? Not the over-policing, not that. It's like, what do we actually have to do? Um, you know, we've been working a lot on 51st Avenue and baseline with the communities there. Um, and again, to how things have flipped since I got on council, we have officers who are wanting to drive folks to uh, detox centers rather than to take them to jail like these are officers themselves who are tired of just arresting the same folks or, or whatever um, but they have to drive them all the way out to Avondale or to other places we need to have those resources in our community and I know it sounds scary and, and we don't want those overwhelming big centers but we want to make sure that our community has access uh, to, to places that they can heal when they're uh, and, you know addicted or when they need the support.
2: So some will consider them access and others will consider that a burden, you know, because you will say that that could be pretty scary and then we'll, we'll, we'll get your answer first. Um.
1: I actually agree with Carlos on this one. It's about putting more resources in our community where we can actually address those. The detox center is a great idea, and ensuring that it is funded through collaboration with the state access program, I think, is the best way that we do that to address those issues. And we also have to make sure that we are not putting an unfair burden on the neighborhoods in which these community in which these centers are housed, and making sure that um, that when individuals are not receptive to the um, the treatment that we have another avenue as well so that those neighborhoods don't continue to deal with this, per- this person or these people that are continuing to use.
2: And this question is for, uh, for Carlos. Why does Councilman uh, Garcia send his children to school in Tempe rather than South Phoenix?
0: That is a great question and I, I send one kid to, to Tempe, Chimal who's in the in the room um, so one of the priorities for me was the Spanish immersion program. and so I, I was, um, so he gets bus from here from South Phoenix. He goes a lot of kids from here go. Um, but I'm also really proud not only myself but of my wife's work. My wife's on the Roosevelt School Board. so it wasn't that we made the decision because we didn't like certain schools. it was because the accessibility to learn Spanish wasn't. Um, here in South Phoenix and so now as a family we're working together to make sure that the school districts and the schools around us are, are the best possible. She's an educator, she gets to make most of these decisions but I'm really proud of my son, um, his education and, and also the support of our local schools that we've been able to do. You don't have any
2: children, so you don't have any children at the question. school, so he Greg, took his, his Greg, next question.
3: Sure, thank you. What did each of you learn uh, from the pandemic and how will you apply those lessons moving forward
2: Keisha uh,
1: one of the things that i learned from the pandemic is that most individuals present company included are one or two issues away from homelessness and i thought one of the things that we did see were very important is um, and i do volunteer work as a lawyer as in the landlord tenant space so people who are facing evictions and i realized that there needs i that one we need a better and stronger eviction prevention program and that we were able to do some of that I saw through federal funds and I think the city needs to invest likewise to prevent that because the data does show us that the cost of rehoming someone after they've experienced homelessness is higher than if we help them stay in their their residence. So I definitely, that's one of the lessons I've learned from COVID is housing insecurity is 100% real.
0: Carlos um i learned so many lessons uh i would say equity or or that Keep all it the, to one or two <laughs> one. The, all the things that are wrong with the world in a pandemic and in, in a crisis um, are exacerbated so our life expectancy our housing all those sorts of things um the main lesson i learned and the, the one of the things i did that that i'm really proud of win or lose it will forever be there we didn't have a public health department in the city of phoenix when the pandemic started um, some of my colleagues were youtubing and quoting things that were probably not the best for our city Um, i pushed really hard almost You know, I was called a broken record by some of the folks in my staff because we needed a public health, and now I can say we have two public health experts, and we're working together with other public health agencies to make sure that the city is both equitable and equipped in case we have another crisis, but also to make sure that the inequities that exist are taken care of.
2: So thank you. I got about 10 questions about the light rail extension and gentrification so I want to make sure that I, that I asked at least one. So with the light rail expansion how will you protect long term South Phoenix residents from gentrification and specifically uh, to make their um, neighborhoods safer but also how would you protect residents that are probably going to be priced out? because of the light rail and the increase of property values here. We'll begin with you in about 30 seconds so we can have more questions.
1: So I think one of the ways that we can help uh, prevent gentrification as a light rail comes in is making sure that we have sufficient affordable housing and workforce housing along the light rail corridor, along the light rail. And for those individuals that are further in, I think we can do uh, one, uh, we want to make sure that our seniors, those are 65 and older, have a exemption of some sort that allows them, because they're on fixed income, that allows their tax and property tax to remain at a level that is that they're able to afford. Um, and I think we do that transitional program for some time for all members of the of the of the area as this continues to grow. And it could be simply as we're sim- something as simple as ensuring that we put a cap on our property tax for a certain transitionary period.
0: We don't have to figure that out on our own. Uh, The amazing community groups have come out with the transit oriented development plan that I think has a lot of the roots of the things we need to do Um, you know between the sevens is district seven but I've still been able to work a lot with with the community down there I think one of the things we have to make sure we do is as a city put stake in our game so any city owned uh, property that's there we need to make sure that it's affordable housing Um, and we need to actually look at grant programs and being able um, to support people that currently live there. trailer parks in the area. If there's a trailer park near the light rail, we need to make sure we preserve it and make sure we keep that affordability there um, and that we're helping those folks because their property taxes may go up. Do we start a scholarship program to make sure that those folks can keep up with those different property taxes? And so I do think there's, there's some pieces of the plan there and there's also some nonprofits that are looking to support the area that we've been working with.
2: Thank you, I got quite a few questions uh, in Spanish and um, I translated at least one of them, so uh, thank you to La Voz. And uh, Tevin Mas and La uh, Radio 1190 who helped me with this and promoted it in Spanish. I know Carlos, you speak Spanish. If you happen to only speak Spanish and when I ask a question, please do so. I'm able to translate it, but I'm not going to ask obviously for you to speak Spanish because that would not be fair. So this is uh, this came from a Spanish speaker. Um, Reader, Uh, Arizona is consistently in the top 15 uh, states for human trafficking and Phoenix is a human trafficking hub. So specifically, how will you raise awareness of human trafficking in District 8 and how would you protect the community from it? We'll begin with you.
1: How would I raise the awareness? I think similar, we, we can do a similar campaign to what we saw with the NFL when that came, the Super Bowl came into town. There was an entire project called uh, It's a Penalty, which was targeting human tra- tra- trafficking and making sure that information went out. I think one of the things that the city can do is Human trafficking tends to occur in the hospitality area, in the ho- in the hotels, in that type of arena. We may want to start educating those individuals on that type of on that. What are the red flags? What are the things to look out for in human trafficking? Um, we want. We may want to develop a specific unit that addresses that, not just from a law enforcement perspective, but from a community or social services persp- perspective. Many people go into human trafficking at an early age when they are vulnerable. They're usually looking for something that this. person person that is trafficking them can provide, whether or not that is finances, security, and it's how do we address the underlying issue in which they are being human trafficked.
2: And I think in this case human trafficking meant exactly what you were saying, you know, there's sex trafficking and, and what have you, but also I believe that the question was about um, human trafficking from the border, in drop houses um, that may be. Here in South Phoenix, so uh, in that context as well. But yes, that that, that was absolutely p- part of the question. Carlos.
0: Yeah, so part of that, we do have a human trafficking task force. I do think we need to figure out how to be uh, a more immigrant friendly city. I do think there's in situations of human trafficking where officers can do U visas, can do other and have other resources available for people that are victims of human trafficking. Um, Now, when you're talking about other sorts of things, um, I know it's it's kind of, it seems like a question from the past, from the early 2000s where that was a big hot topic. I do think we've turned the page as a state and as a city. We're no longer you know, the, the state known for, for Sheriff Arpaio and 1070. So I think now it's about figuring out resources and how we can support the folks that are coming.
2: Greg, do you have another question?
0: I do.
3: So how do you plan to partner uh, with the Maricopa Community Colleges to foster or create job training programs in the district?
2: Keisha?
1: Um, one of the ideas or one of the things uh, that Drew me to this role is Phoenix is slated to be the semiconductor capital uh, of the U.S. Uh, We are we have on semi we have Intel we have Taiwan Semiconductor. Um, One of the things that I definitely want to partner with Maricopa County um, Community College on is a program they do in Chandler called Quick Start. I want to bring it here to South Mountain Community College as well as Gateway Community College. It allows an individual to attend 80 hours. I'm sorry, 40 hours of training, and at the completion, if you once you've that and you've passed this you've received certification to now work in a fab so that takes an individual from being a, a minimum wage or a working class to now being able to work in a fab and they now have increased their earning capacity so that's one of the things I definitely would like to see and implement here in uh, in South Phoenix Carlos
0: so we're We've done um, a scholarship program over this last year um, where we're not only giving funds to pay for tuition, but in conversations with Gateway and other community colleges, they asked us to actually give funds for other needs that folks may have, whether it's childcare, those sorts of things. I think that TMI, the the semiconductor conversation you know the mayor likes to tout it as it's it's this great thing it is this great thing one of the thing that's happening right now is a lot of the jobs are being taken um, by people that aren't from here or companies that aren't from here we're seeing a lot of problems right now with the construction um, with non-labor uh, you know non-union workers uh, making mistakes there so we also need to make sure that, that semiconductor plant is accountable and, and is, is taking care of the people of Phoenix, that semiconductor plant is going to use the equivalent of 800,000 people in water a year. And so if we have this conversation about, hey, there's a water crisis, we need to make sure that we're prepared and ready before we start wanting to grow um, something that big if we cannot sustain it.
2: I, I also had a, um, have a series of questions. As soon as I told people who we were having this debate, I started hearing from Latinos who were telling me, but of course this district belongs to, La- to Latinos. And then uh, another set of questions saying, but of course this district belongs to African Americans. So Carlos, why should African Americans vote for you? And same for you, Keisha, why should Latinos vote for you or anyone else for that matter? We'll begin with you.
0: I, I think it's about values. It's about who you're working for and the things that you're doing, who's, who you represent and the people who are supporting you. Um, I think I've been proud to, to you know, be supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement and also black small businesses, black farmers and creating that space. Um, this district, the the demographics are one thing, right? It's 44% Latino, it's you know 18% black, all these sorts of things. But I think this district, and particularly this area, when you talk about 24th Street and Broadway, 16th and Broadway, we've grown up together, and there's a lot of you know. Uh, black sickened families there's a lot of families you know i i happen to have black nieces and nephews and so i think in this community there's a difference between those of us who kind of growing up raising our kids in this area um, who learned uh, to work with each other who are making sure that you know el park and Lenan park who had been uh, abandoned since the 70s we were able to redo them and we've been able to do those types of projects together Um, and working with organizations that are here in South Seas. So
2: how come I keep hearing from African Americans that you do not respond to them and then we're going to go to you?
0: I, I don't know who that, that, that's coming from. I do know that we have monthly meetings with different organizations. We obviously have neighborhood associations. Um, and there's a lot of black folks that we work with that, that you know, have been part of our campaign, that have been part of the team. And so I don't know who you're exactly referring to, but I've actually made sure to make sh- you know that myself and my staff are responsive and working alongside the, the black community.
2: And same for you, Keisha, why should Latinos vote for you, and Carlos has the advantage of obviously speaking Spanish, so why should Latinos support you? I think a
1: person shouldn't be judged based on the color of their skin or the the language that they speak. I think it should be based on who that person is and what their values that they stand for. as an attorney, I represent a broad spectrum of individuals. My clients are black, they're white, Latino, Asians. At the end of the day, I don't think we should elevate one demographic over another. I think at the end of the day, that divisive type of policy is does not further anyone. It's then it becomes a continual back and forth and pull in. Um, I think, um, and I'll just say this: as, a, as, a, as the president of the Arizona Black Bar, I worked with the, uh, I've worked with the Hispanic Bar, I've worked with the Asian Bar, I've been able to. But at the end of the day, our end, our goals are all the same and we should not be focused on what what color this person is or who they are. It's whether or not you trust this person to move our community in the direction that you want to see it. I am proud to say I have, because of that, I noticed uh, my coalition of supporters are very diverse. As you mentioned, it includes the like of the highest ranking Latino in, in Arizona State Government, Adrian Fontes, it also includes it also includes, you know, Armour Hernandez, Robert Mesa. It includes other people. It is not a, it's astonishing that in 2023 we're still saying that a district is should be only African American or Latino.
2: No one can disagree with that,
0: right? Yeah.
1: 30 seconds. Yeah, no one no, can we, disagree we can't with that.
0: disagree with yeah. that, but I think right. the values is what's important, right? Someone like Robert Mesa is the reason why people's cars get towed. Every day, right? He made it to where someone that doesn't have a driver's license, their cars get towed. So there is values. There is values on depending on on your black, brown, or white. There is uh, values, and and class has a lot to do with it. Where you live and and who you relate to is also very important.
1: But are you saying that you shouldn't have a, You shouldn't have to have a license if you have a car? Is that what you're saying? Their your cars are getting towed.
0: It's. So, for, for those, so I was formerly undocumented, and for the undocumented community, we're not allowed to get driver's license. So um, Robert Mesa led a bill to make sure that anyone that, knowing that, um, and he led a lot of other different bills. And so now anyone that, you know, undocumented people get preyed upon by towing companies and their cars have been taken away now for the last 15 years thanks to someone like Robert Mesa. So that's someone I definitely would never accept um, an endorsement from.
1: But what about working towards policies where you can get some kind of identification versus simply saying that you don't, you shouldn't get an identification? The city. I was speaking to a doctor. I'm sorry. What
2: was that? Sorry. What was that again? I missed that. So, so what? About what about, the about idea?
1: working towards solutions where you can get the identification instead of just simply saying I don't have an identification and that's the end of it?
2: Okay. So in this case, I mean, we're talking about immigration, and I think folks here will, will, would agree that when you are undocumented, not dreamers, when you are undocumented here in Arizona, you are not allowed to get a driver license, <laughs> period. No, so,
1: <laughs> I'm not disagreeing with that. What I'm saying is instead of focusing on the result, how about focusing on changing that rule? Okay, so
2: how would you change that? It is a So what- one.
1: Of, so I did I was speaking to a DACA student about this not too long ago and one of the proposals that he recommended it was like in the community colleges just simply having an identification is what you need to start the process. And we can use it, we can
2: Okay, no, uh, but we'll, look, we'll, we'll uh, let her what, answer, uh,
1: he, what he's saying is, you need some kind of identification, something that shows where you reside. And then you can, and he said, it could be started off as simple as allowing a student, allowing the student ID from a school to identify your address, because you need an address or proof of residence in order to start the dreamer process. So that's what I'm talking about. Let's focus on solutions versus focus on. So you on support
2: that? You, you would support something like that? I would support something like that, yes. Greg, any final questions on this or anything else?
3: This one stands out to me. What major changes, if any, should be made in the next revision of the city's general plan?
2: Carlos.
0: I think we can start. We've talked about the trailer parks. I do think, you know. Um, we're currently being challenged at at the state as to the role of the city's general plan, right? Like, and when you talk about general plan, we talk about where the city's going on development. We have village planning committees. We have a planning commission. I do think we need to do better community engagement. Um, and also making sure that processes, kind of like we did with the transit-oriented development around the light rail, that we include that in our general plan. Um, that work, that team that's restructuring the general plan is at work right now, and so I do think, I w- I don't wanna ask, but I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of people don't even know that that process is happening now. And that's a process in which we get to design or, or try to clarify what kind of growth, what kind of development we want in our neighborhoods. And so I, I think it starts with making sure people know that this process exists, and that when the general plan is ready, people uh, can, can access it and know what's happening, um, especially when there's something coming to their neighborhood.
2: I think you're right. I think general people do not know the process is happening, but I'll say uh, Spanish speakers in particular have you know, no clue. Uh, so. Yes, so Oh, you do? Great. Yes. That's wonderful. OK. So, um, Keisha, same question to you. Same question to you, the same that, that, that he asked about the gentleman.
1: Um, some of the changes I would probably want to see to general plan is maybe increasing our density because we do like I said have a housing to ju- a housing issue um, and that would be one of the focus I would definitely want us to see want to see happen um, so that we ensure that I believe that housing is a basic right and right now we're seeing a short supply and we need to increase that supply issue
2: okay so it's 7.03 we are out of time I do have two other questions before we finalize I know um, you know, if you have questions, I have tons that I was not able to um, to ask here. But uh, I want to follow up uh, before uh, closing statements on the endorsements. So you said you would never accept an endorsement from someone like the former lawmaker. Are there any endorsement that you would never accept, Keisha.
1: I mean I'm sure there's probably something that I mean but I haven't I mean I don't think I've accepted an endorsement that I would not uh, accept at this juncture um, maybe some white you know right-wing group maybe I wouldn't accept their endorsement but maybe you're not sure <laughs> yeah I'm like not maybe I wouldn't but I haven't I haven't asked for it I haven't sought it I haven't received it so it's like hypothetical what would I not accept
2: okay so um, my final kind of question to you, uh, and I actually got this. Does he get this, the same or, or question? You have, oh, go ahead. I was saying does he get the same
0: question? The, the yeah, real, absolutely. The, the Realtors Association, I've literally heard that the reason that they're, uh, in, coming against me not necessarily on you but why they're coming against me and why they've given you know over $80,000 is because I dare to talk about um, not discrimination and it's a non discrimination ordinance um, on income source that we're voting on uh, on March 1st next week um, that I'm really proud of and that's you know that type of funds I would never accept I would never take anything that goes against my values.
2: You feel like you want to say something? Yeah, ahead, I, since I don't. I mean,
1: I've, I've had that conversation with the realtors. I don't believe that they are necessarily supporting me because of your opposition to that. We both agree that nobody should be uh, discriminated based on the source of their income. So I don't believe, I, I want to just make sure I disagree with you on that. No,
0: we yeah. Don't.
2: Okay, so no, we're, we but are, the realtors have lobbied. The they've go. Go real,
0: The realtors have lobbied folks for us to make sure that this doesn't pass at City Hall, and so they've been lobbying. So <laughs> they may not, you know. I've told I you mean, that. I mean, we just had a, real, a realtor
2: saying no, they're, they're not. Like that is not. Okay, so we're we're, we're gonna move on. Thank yeah. you for that, Greg. You had one final thing, and sure, yeah. it'll be the last. One.
3: Listen, in the political process, and this is from me. This is a question from me political process is just degraded yes, it is. I mean I am just sometimes when I watch debates not that you guys have gone this far but I've seen debates where I just turned the TV off because I wasn't learning anything other than how disgusting humans can be yes. this has not turned into that but we have to maintain a level of decorum even as we disagree in order to get anything done so how do you balance your passion for a particular issue with the reality that you've got to work with people with whom you disagree to move the needle forward?
2: We'll begin with you, Keisha here.
1: I think one of the things that I, one of the things, a skill set that I have uh, accumulated over my experience as a lawyer and a mediator is the ability to figure out what is our common goal. And I think once we focus on what our common goal is, we are more likely to listen to one another versus then focusing on what divides us. Um, when you started to talk about some of the divisive things and the, the negative component of this campaign. It definitely has been. I think it's been. We've seen that here, um, and it's one of the things, for example, that I've seen or I've met, been tried to make feel feel guilty for is the fact that I've t- I've I've went to law school and I've passed the bar and I've been able to practice in a variety of areas and I don't think that anyone should ever have to be ashamed of their successes but sometimes the opposition will say things about I am a removed person I am no I'm not I'm first-generation college I'm first-generation American citizen I am first-generation to accomplish these things and I'm not going to undermine or discount my parents sacrifices to make to make anybody else feel more comfortable. I know what it is I the working family in the United States and Arizona and Phoenix is not singular. It is not simply somebody who's in a union or someone who is this way. It is someone who works for what they have gotten and they continue to do so sorry. So when I talk about bridging gaps it's about figuring out what is our common goal. And a lot of times the common goal is actually more I, I think Carlos and I can agree on a common goal, and the common goal even more in, the police, in the public safety is we don't want any more police shootings. We don't want people dying innocently at the hands of law enforcement,
2: right? There was uh, a lot there in this answer, so. Yes. <laughs> Carlos.
0: Um, I, I think in this in this position you you it actually you you have to deal with that in three different scenarios right the first one is with your colleagues your other elected officials right and I've been able to I never thought I was gonna be able to say this but I've been able to pass Things or work alongside from Sal Decisio to the mayor to you know some of the other folks that I work with, and so you have to learn to have that discourse and have conversations about you know things that you need to get done that works for everyone. Sal Decisio is supporting this uh, income source, anti-income source discrimination because of something that happened to him. So we're working together on this. Now there's some things like him wanting to get rid of pensions for city workers that I'm never going to agree on. So there's no place there that we're going to be able to work together you also have to deal with city staff that's who actually makes the city run those 15,000 people have come and come from different places you have to figure out how to work with them and finally your constituents your constituents also and, and one of the things I said when I first ran because when you first run you you don't really know what you're getting into or if you're going to be ready or what's going to happen but what I told people is just as hard as I fought against Sheriff Arpaio, just as hard as I fought against 1070 of those things that you've seen, I'm gonna fight to make sure that your alley's clean, that your streets are ready, and your parks are, are how they should be, and that's what I've been able to prove, is that in those three areas, I've been able to work with people on different spectrums, but there is a line that I draw. There are certain things I will absolutely not work with people on.
2: I do want you to uh, answer something that uh, Keisha mentioned, which is, uh, making her feel guilty for her success. I, I, Are you making her feel guilty because I, she's successful? I suspect?
0: apologize if I did that somehow. You I, I, I messaging uh, has turned Go through. ahead, let's, I, I let, let, let's have him answer that. I don't know how that happened. I'm super proud of anyone, especially person of color who's graduated, and, and I hope my son aims to be an attorney, so there's, there's no reason, and, and I don't know how that campaign did that. Um, but I've actually tried to stay away from that even in my previous campaign um, you know some people do opposition research those sorts of things I can stand here with my family and my my children here and say I've never done opposition research I've never done anything um, to try to be negative about somebody else um, and my campaign messaging speaks to myself and my own experience and and I hope whatever that, that feeling is, is, is not some, or that you understand that that wasn't intentional in any way. Kesha,
2: 30 seconds, anything else on this? Oh, really good. Okay. I mean, I,
1: I respect him for saying that, but that has not been the message that I've been receiving at the doors. Um, hopefully it will trigger down or roll down to the people that are walking on behalf of him that we say that, so thank you. It means a lot to hear that, because I did work hard for that accomplishment and I'm not gonna
2: shy away from it. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, and uh, we really, really want to be respectful of your time. So the final question that I have is um, for 30 seconds, whatever you want to say about why people should vote for you, but also specifically, I want you to tell us um, what will you do for District 8 if you are not elected? If you are not elected, what would you do for District 8? as a private citizen Keisha
1: I mean I will continue to do what I do I continue to serve in the background I continue to register voters I continue to do felony restoration of rights I continue to provide uh, landlord tenant assistance to those that are in need I continue to work on scholarship funds I continue to call him and I like I told him before if I don't win, I continue to be a thorn in your side I mean it is I, I'm not going to stop because of this I continue to champion I think There are areas that I can continue to do without the role of city council and I'm committed to continue to doing that.
2: Carlos.
0: I've been a community organizer my entire adult life and I would continue to do so. Do the things that I've done, and helping my community, um, but I do want the opportunity to finish the work that we've done. We've done amazing things in the last three and a half years, and there's a lot of work yet to be done that I'm excited to 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 put forth. You know, this these last I've learned a lot. I do think there's there's a curve, and in, in again the hypothetical or or the. the the place where I, I wouldn't win, I would also be available to Keisha um, to make sure that her learning curve isn't as hard as mine was.
2: Well, thank you so much.
3: Thank you so
1: much for listening. This has been a bonus episode from The Gaggle, a politics podcast from the Arizona Republican com. For more on the Phoenix runoff election, Be sure to listen to our episode with Republic reporter Taylor Seeley. We'll see you next week.